I'm sort of saying to people, hey, here's a really cool thing we know from science. Let me help you implement it into your life if you think it might be meaningful for you. You're listening to Talking Your Way to Change, a podcast about psychotherapy. I'm the host, Dan Banker. Today, my special guest is Matthew S. Boone, author of the book, Stop Avoiding Stuff, 25 Micro Skills to Face Your Fears and Do It Anyway. Matt is a social worker, psychotherapist, and public speaker who specializes in translating mental health concepts for the general public. He is the editor of Mindfulness and Acceptance in Social Work. He is a peer-reviewed Acceptance Commitment Therapy Act trainer, and he regularly facilitates these trainings for professionals and the general public. He lives in Little Rock, Arkansas with his wife, Kat, and guitars, and loves talking about mental health with people who think psychotherapy and self-help are a bit cringy. I love that. Welcome to the show, Matt. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. I feel like this is you've been just so generous with your time and talking with me and making this happen. I got connected with you by listening to you talk in another podcast called Psychologist Off the Clock. I learned about your book. Um, I ordered it immediately because I'm always looking for exercises that clients can readily use. Um, and during this pandemic, as a therapist doing telehealth counseling, um, I felt like I really had to sort of widen my variety of therapy approaches and interventions. Um, in particular, I feel like I've had to use more models that educate people or have an education educational component. Um, and I and I read the book. I've read it a couple times, and I really loved the one book reviewer that said that it's full of very simple, digestible, bite-sized pieces that can help you take small steps in your life um, and creating a life that really matters to you. The other reason I really appreciated your approach is um, throughout my career, I've usually always had a community outreach portion of my job that I got paid for, or now this is all volunteer. Um, but I've really liked the idea of translating to the public the things that we learn about in our particular, I mean, your field was social work and mine was psychology, but just the research in helping everybody improve their mood relationships. Um, and so I'm hoping that in today's episode that we're able to do that. I believe we will. But I also just love this idea that you have about um, just bringing our best selves to our lives and kind of, you know, living our life as the best kind of person that we can be. Um, but I thought I'd have you start just sort of sharing about yourself a little bit professionally, whatever feels interesting to share. Um, but, and maybe also what you're kind of most interested in, like, you know, that usually can shift over time, but kind of like, what's your jam now? <laughs> um, so you can call me Matt, and I've been a social worker for about 20 years, Okay. and I've worked in a variety of settings, and I'm currently in one of my favorite settings, which is in college mental health. 
I work at a medical school and my clients in psychotherapy are all medical students, nursing students, public health students, anyone studying at this medical school in Arkansas where I work. Okay. Um, and I also have, like you, I have a community outreach kind of function to my job and I have throughout most of my career where part of my role is to get out in the community and like present a face of the counseling center to the general public so that people feel like, oh, this is maybe a place I could go where it would not be so scary to talk about who I am. And one of the ways I do that is by giving presentations on mental health concepts and trying to translate them so people can really um, digest them in bite-sized ways. Um, I've also done that in other settings. So before working at this medical school, I spent three years working in Silicon Valley um, remotely, creating digital programming for folks um, and doing the same thing, trying to distill skills into things that people can learn very quickly and implement in their life. So that's probably my jam. I think that's the thing I like the most is what you're calling the education piece where I'm sort of saying to people, hey, here's a really cool thing we know from science. Let me help you implement it into your life if you think it might be meaningful for you. Yes. I was thinking that indirectly too, I feel like that really helps with stigma too, like that that we're sort of sort of normalizing. And maybe um, this would be a good segue into talking about ACT, but that, you know, how many of us do sort of like live with depression and anxiety and yet and can get the services we need and lead really meaningful lives, really kind of at a at a level that we're not only really enjoying our lives, but sort of making a difference in the world. When I when I kind of understand your book, um, I think it's based on what's called acceptance commitment therapy. And I was thinking maybe it would be helpful for you to even talk about that um, to someone who's never heard of that before, maybe someone who's never been to therapy before. Mm -hmm. Yes, acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, said as one word, is a evidence-based therapy. So it's grounded in science. Um, and it's been tested to see if it helps people and show and proven that it has for a variety of things. It is a model of suffering and thriving that suggests that what you're dealing with in your life that might be leading to suffering is also what I'm dealing with in my life that's leading to suffering. That we are all in this human soup together and we tend to fall prey to kind of very basic processes of thinking and responding to behavior and responding to emotions that get us all hung up in some way. And we're actually all built to do these things. And that what happens is we end up doing them in places where they don't really get us what we're going after. And so it's very destigmatizing because we all do this. I do it, you do it. And there's no like, distinction between you, the client, and me, the therapist. I'm just saying, hey, I know about these principles. Let me help you bring them into your life. And I'm happy to talk about what those principles are. Yeah. Okay. Um, if you were going to describe this approach to therapists, people who are more embedded in psychotherapy, mm -hmm. what would you say differently? You know, I might say some of the same stuff. Um, I might kind of go forward and talk about what those principles are. But okay. I might say, if you learn these principles and some of these strategizes, these strategies for putting principles into practice, you can integrate this into pretty much anything that you're already doing and it might help enhance what you're doing. And so these principles 
Um, well, I'll back up and say ACT is kind of based on the idea that we all kind of know, but we forget very easily, which is that if you have something inside you that's very powerful and you try to push it away, it's likely to push back. And okay. we know this from science, right? We know um, if you try to suppress a thought or feeling, there's an initial kind of attenuation of that thought or feeling. So a sadness or a thought about a painful memory, like you can push it away a little bit, but on average, it's going to come back and it's going to come back in other ways and it's going to come back in uh, somewhat more powerfully. And we don't really even need to look at science to know that. I can say to you, if I ask you this question, I bet you're going to get it right. If I asked you not to think of a white bear for a minute, what do you think would happen? Think of a polar bear. <laughs> right. Came you're right to my mind, Coca-Cola polar bear. Sorry. Right. You're likely to think of a white bear more. However, in popular culture and in our conversations with each other, just, you know, talking to our friends and our partners and our family members, the first version of what we say to someone is usually something like, well, let me tell you how you shouldn't think of it that way. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. So, yeah, it, I mean, it's interesting. So if I'm coming at it from, you know, another therapist point of view, I'm, it, it sounds like it's not really like a, a diagnostic type of approach of like, um, yeah, like, you know, the symptoms you're describing or what you're describing that you're really distressed about in your life is anxiety is this kind of anxiety. And these are the, the, uh, strategies we're going to use to treat that. So you don't have that anxiety anymore. So we can, you know, qualify this in, for the insurance company and then it's paid and then you're done and then you're gone. If you're able to sort of, you know, manage or complete the sort of tasks or, interventions that we've mm -hmm. set out. That seems very different than what you're sort of describing. Yeah, and it doesn't exclude the perspective you're describing, but okay. we might, start, and I'll describe how it could fit within a variety of diagnoses. So the diagnosis is just how your problem is manifesting on the surface. Okay. okay. Right. So let's think about the various anxiety disorders. Yeah. Panic disorder. OCD, panic okay. yep. PTSD, OCD, PTSD. health anxiety, social phobia, all these ways in which people suffer with anxiety. Okay. okay. Yep. So in the ACT tradition and also in the behavioral and cognitive behavioral tradition from which ACT comes, it's thought that these problems are just manifestations of some of the same core processes, which are, I'll just talk about one and it's a, it's a big one, which is okay. unnecessary avoidance and control. Okay. So for example, if you have panic disorder, you are afraid that panic attacks are going to show up in your life and they do show up a lot and your life becomes organized around that. Well, it turns out that a certain percentage of people, a very large one, have panic attacks all every, throughout their life, but not everyone develops panic disorder. So what's the difference? Well, if you develop panic disorder, it's likely in part because when it shows up, you have a very high anxiety sensitivity. You get very scared, understandably, of this racing heart you're having and this rush of adrenaline. And then you do everything you can not to feel that. And then your life becomes organized around trying not to feel that. And what do evidence-based treatments for panic teach us? Well, let's help people actually go towards those feelings so they can come and go because they're just physical sensations. They're no different from what you feel when you fall in love or you're on a roller coaster or you're surfing or any of those other things that spike your adrenaline. Uh, they're just scary because they're showing up at the wrong time, according to your mind. 
And so can we invite you to experience them in a way that lets them come and go on their own and therefore your life becomes less or organized around panic and eventually panic subsides or becomes less powerful even if it doesn't go away completely. Okay. And so I can describe it that way in every single anxiety disorder. I see. So two of the, the dynamics that you're talking about is one avoidance and then yep. two, you, I think you mentioned control. Are they the same thing or are they different things? Um, there are lots or of is control just one example of how you could avoid or I, I would say I would say there's lots of different ways to talk about this, but okay. I would say that avoiding is one way to control. Avoiding right? is one way to control. Okay. Right. So so for example, if we think just broadly in human suffering, and this is what the book is about. The book, by the way, I wrote with two co-authors, Jennifer Gregg and Lisa Coyne, who are amazing. Um, the idea is that when we avoid things in our life, it's not just that we're like staying away from the situations. We are staying away from what would show up inside of us, thoughts, feelings, sensations, memories, were we to do the thing that we're avoiding. And so what we're really avoiding is the experience we would have if we were to say, sit down and start working on that big project, call that person we were scared to call, ask that person on a date, ask your boss for a raise, all the things that we're not doing. It's because okay. we don't want to feel the things we would feel if that would happen. And that's it, a way of trying to control our thoughts and feelings in a way that is unnecessary, ineffective, and actually creates bigger problems, just like that panic disorder example I gave. Okay. So avoidance is we're it's like risk aversion or like we're trying to stay away from things that we don't want to feel, think, mm -hmm. or yeah. do, I guess, right? Yeah. Feel, think, or do. And the other thing about avoidance that I was thinking about is the idea that sometimes it's not that we're or that there's like a lack of behavior because we're not doing it. But then sometimes we do things that are also avoidance that I don't think people think about, like maybe drink or like we add yeah. a behavior that's keeping us from something that we're trying to avoid. Well said. I mean, I work with lots of people and, you know, medical students, okay. one of their tendencies is to work harder than they need to. Because what they're trying to stay away from is that sense of like, oh, I'm not doing enough. Maybe my colleagues are doing more if they were to slow down and take a break. Yes. Or yeah, people that work 12 hours a day instead of 10 and that two of those hours is, are just about managing their anxiety. Absolutely. Absolutely. So often what I'm suggesting to people, what I did in the programming I did in Silicon Valley with uh, people in business, and okay. I also do with uh, people studying in medicine is say, hey, what if you did just a little bit less? You could practice this week doing just a little bit less and see if we can make space for that discomfort that shows up in a way that's light and doesn't really buy into what it's telling you, which is that you got to keep driving yourself. Correct. And you can hear then what, what acceptance and commitment therapy is about in that example, because I'm inviting you to accept or be willing Okay. To have what shows up inside of you. Okay. While you commit, take action in the service of what's important to you. So maybe your health, your well-being, and time with your family is important to you. So it's worth it to you to dial back all that working for just a minute and make space for that discomfort. Yes. Just a global statement, and then I kind of want to dive into the book a little bit. Sure. One of the the biggest things that I have, I feel like I've taken away from learning more about acceptance, commitment therapy, and even the book, 
is this idea that if I am going to sort of engage in life and do the things that I really want to do, I might not actually feel better. I might actually feel worse in a way. Like I might be be allowing myself to sort of experience more mm-hmm. this discomfort or this anxiety. Like if I just wait for myself to not feel anxious about stuff, I feel like I wouldn't get a lot done or I wouldn't be accomplishing what I want to for my career. I agree. Like Zan, I'm going to, I'm going to guess that both of us had to bring with us a little bit of anxiety this morning to record. Oh, completely. Podcast. Yeah. I was like, this is when the thing that I fear the most is this whole podcast thing, a <laughs> whole podcast. Right. And exactly. my mind is here saying, did you say something wrong? Um, were you unclear? Are you being too wordy? Are you yeah. losing the audience? Do you sound okay. stupid? That's like my thoughts are coming up yes. while I'm here. And yes. my, Yes. My emotions are like, oh, I can feel a little extra caffeine feeling in my body that comes from this adrenaline of speaking. Like, I have, if I'm going to do what I care about, which is exactly this, okay. I have I... to feel this stuff. Right. But it's different in that from an acceptance and commitment therapy perspective. It's not just I'm going to tolerate this and grit my teeth through it. Okay. It's more like, can I make space for this? Can I let this be part of me? An invited guest even because this is intimately connected to what I care about. So if I care about helping people, this anxiety and this worry that I'm gonna do it wrong is intimately connected to that and it's not my enemy. At the same time, I don't have to let it be in charge. Yes, so I mean, is that kind of like when we were talking about those avatars and this has been, this is mine, it's gonna be Gidget. And because I was like, okay, I'm gonna try to make it cute so that I don't hate her or hate this part. But I like that, like this idea of like, I'm will, I'm, I'm just allowing that to be there. I'm not going to not do the activity until she doesn't exist. Cause she is going to exist. I mean, it's a part of myself, right? Like yeah. it kind of reminds me of some like parts work in trauma too. Like sure. I have this like part of me that's going to come along in this journey and I can be nice to her and she can be nice to me. And I mean, I, I, I don't know if I completely understand it, but it has been helping. I'm so glad. Well, yeah, let's give people background. So yes, please. you and I okay. spoke a few yeah. weeks ago to prepare for this. We just kind of had a really nice kind of, kind of long conversation about acceptance and commitment therapy. It was really fun. And I told you about an intervention that I use with folks that is um, – sort of my thing, but I also drew it from the ACT tradition, you know, it's sort of my adaptation of some stuff in the ACT tradition. So, you know, it's really hard to teach someone to be accepting with their feelings by just saying, you need to accept. Like, how often does that work? Right. right. <laughs> so, like, that's why I called you, right? That's right. That's, that's right. Care. Like, what is the action of, a sec- of acceptance? Like, what can we actually control, right? Because we can't control whether something uncomfortable like anxiety shows up but what we can control is how we respond to it and a lot of the ways we respond and act are kind of grounded in a metaphor right if we can borrow one kind of thing from our life and apply it to responding to our thoughts and feelings that can make a difference so in act we might say something like um here's a metaphor like why don't you bring it with you like an invited guest this anxiety and then if you, if, you, if you kind of supercharge that a little bit, let's actually make that literal. Could we get an object that represents your anxiety? And so you have your little stuffed animal. I showed you my little domo figurine. Um, 
for those of you who know Domo, who I think comes from Japan. Um, and I like, this is going to represent this part of me that I might otherwise try to push away. And I'm going to carry it around with me this week like it's my little buddy. And so my little figurine, which is really cute, he's got this face. If you Google Domo, you probably find yes. it. He's got this face where it looks like he's yelling, but it could be that he's smiling. <laughs> I, I, have, I took a picture of you holding it last okay, year. Okay, so, so this will be on the website. Okay. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's really hard for me to, like, try to push Domo away because he's so cute. Right. And so what I'm doing is I'm borrowing that relationship I might have with something that's cute that I might want to like, like actually take care of and applying it to my relationship with anxiety. Okay. And that's, that's kind of the nerdy thing that I'm doing underneath it. But really what I'm saying is, Hey, bring this guy like your anxiety and treat him like he belongs here. And so Domo sits with me next to my computer as I, um, as I do what I do during the day. Um, you know, Domo lately has represented for me the part of the little thought that I have and, and the kind of sense of resistance I have that things shouldn't be this way. So if like some of some chronic illness is acting up or some I'm not really doing a good job in therapy, according to my mind that day, um, I just look at Domo and I can see him with his mouth wide open and I'm like, all oh, right, you're here. Of course you're here. Welcome. Come with me. But let's do this thing we care about, which is in this case, like in therapy, supporting someone in case talking to you, kind of trying to talk about these fun concepts that in a way that can make a difference in people's lives. Um, yes. And instead of the, having that fight inside, I'm open yes. and putting all that energy into what I care about. Yes. And that's a cool thing about this book. So that is in the book, like that strategy that we're talking about right now. If that right. sounds like something that would you know fit for the listener, they could go to the book and find it. Right. I right. think. So it's in. Um, it's in 10 strategies for showing up with willingness. It's the yes. final chapter. Okay. And it says, make an avatar of your thought or feeling. And it suggests picking an object, something you, you know, it doesn't have to be something cute, but that helps. Um, and bring it around with you. Yes. Yes. So going through the book, um, the other reason I bought it is like, it wasn't just like one or two skills. It was like 25 skills, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, it, and it, you break these skills down into six sections uh -huh. and um I, I, or maybe principles like it felt like principle one was um was it mindfulness maybe or this kind of becoming more observant of your own experience maybe you could talk about that one i think that one seems like a really pretty big one yeah we the first thing we do in the book Okay. Uh, it's the first thing we do in acceptance and commitment therapy, which is okay. help people learn how their behavior works and how much of their behavior is about unnecessary control, like trying to stay away from discomfort. So um, if the person is, let's say, not working on their taxes, okay, I might say, so what would show up inside you if you were to sit down to work on your taxes? And we might tease out, well, there's that thought that, oh, no, I'm not going to have enough money to pay this, or I made a mistake. Uh, let me, how, how about if I give you an example of one thing that I have today right now that I'm trying to stay away Perfect. with? Perfect. Let's it, I struggle with it all the time. Okay. And as a clinician in sessions that are particularly um, complex mm -hmm. or emotional uh, mm -hmm. for both the client and myself, um, documenting that session is extremely difficult. 
Okay, so is it okay I, if I ask I, you some so, questions? Yeah, so if like I have 10 sessions, uh, 10 case notes I have to write, that is gonna be the very last one I do. Okay, this is great. I'm sure every clinician knows this experience and then every person on earth knows this experience. The thing is complicated, it's hard and I'm gonna stay away from it. Yeah, so it's complicated, hard, yep. So imagine if you sat right down to do it right now, we're gonna do that hard note, okay, yes. the one that's okay. waiting. And you were just to pay attention to what might show up in your mind. What might your mind say as you sat down to do it? I can't put this in a sentence. I feel like I'm gonna have to write a book. That's the first thing. Like, it feels like the verbal part of my mind or some, I can't, I can't bullet side, I can't put it in a bullet. Okay. Or something. And so, well, so confusion, cognitive confusion is okay. one of the first ones. So you're confused. And you're I don't, yeah, and I don't want to feel, I mean, I mean, I guess that's another equally one, like, that was so kind of difficult and challenging emotionally. I don't really want to bring that up again. I want that to stay compartmentalized in that okay. session. So if you were to approach this task that you're avoiding, you'd have this mental confusion, but mm -hmm. you'd also have this feeling that's somehow reminiscent of what the session was like. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And what kind of feelings might that be? Well, it would be some about the, this is interesting that this just came to me right now. I mean, partly, I mean, on the surface, it feels like, oh, maybe about some of the upsetting material that was mm -hmm. processed. Like it was, I felt sad or, or mm -hmm. mad, but maybe more just feelings of helplessness. Like, okay. did I do the right thing? Oh boy. Like maybe it feels like that some sessions count more than others. And I'm not sure I have a, so yeah, maybe I didn't do a good enough job or something. Okay. So a sense of helplessness, maybe yeah. some doubts about doing a good enough job. Mm -hmm. And are there body experiences that go along with that? Maybe feel a little bit sweaty and antsy, antsy. Yeah. Antsy. <laughs> Like I'd want to be eating something or chewing something or like, yeah, so many anxiety. Oh gosh, that sounds so familiar to me. <laughs> yeah, does it? Okay. Yeah, it's like, oh. Okay, so let's just pause here in this moment. What we're doing right now as I'm asking these questions is what's embedded in that first section of the book, which is building awareness of the moment. Okay. So are you, as we're talking about it, are you contacting the, the experience of it just a little bit? A little bit, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I'm inviting you to do that. And then this is the behavioral principle I want to teach you that organizes a lot of our behavior. So notice these are thoughts, feelings, and sensations. And when you're not sitting down to do the note, you're staying away from these thoughts, feelings, and sensations, which is a way of trying to control them. Exactly. So the principle is you do, you get, you avoid, you get something, right? You get relief from this stuff or you get to stay away from it for a little while. And, but the thing that's so interesting about it too, as I sit with this is that the other thing you get though, is that it's always on your mind. No, I got to do that. I got to do that. I got to do that. Right. So what that must be less aversive than this, right? 
Oh, this is such a great example because everything we do has short-term consequences and potentially longer-term consequences. So you get the short-term relief, but in the medium to long-term, what you've got is this nagging, nagging. thing in your mind. Yes. And so what I might invite you to do, I would say, would you consider learning to get closer to that thoughts, feelings, sensations we just described in the surface, in the service of kind of stepping back from that ongoing kind of nagging at you kind of thing that's always there? Yes, yes. And okay. And so why is it sometimes, okay, so you learn a strategy and mm -hmm. I'll learn it and I'll be able to do it and do it a few times. And then I go back into that old pattern, right? I think that's the human question. I mean, that old avoidance learning is so, so powerful. Okay. Right? It Think is about, so powerful. Yes. We, we are, this is what I was saying earlier about this is something we all have and it's actually built into us. Okay. Like this, this thing we do is not bad. Our ancestors survived because of that. Right? Right. So when things evoked sadness, discomfort, anxiety, fear, shame, this motivated our cave people ancestors to do something different. Right? So anxiety would mobilize them to prepare or escape. Fear would certainly mobilize them to fight or flee, right? Here comes the lion, I gotta do something. Shame would mobilize them to um, do something to remediate that shame. Shame is about like what we feel when we're like um, excluded from the tribe. So right, we gotta do something right. to get back into the tribe. Guilt is something that's built into us to help us when we are like we've done something against our moral code. So we gotta fix that. And so fixing feelings is really built into us and is actually very useful. So if you walk into the street and a car is coming, you do not need to think, should I get out of the street? You need that fear reaction. Mm -hmm. And you need to respond to that fear reaction, which is by escaping, right? You're not gonna fight the car. <laughs> so, no, no. So, so this is a really big part of how we're built and it kept us alive and we are perhaps the ascendant species on the earth for better or for worse because of this and a few other kind of core things that we do. However, in contemporary life, when there are no big dangers around, we can just start treating that stuff that shows up inside of us like they're threats, like we have to do something about them. And the easiest thing to do is just avoid, just not doing anything. And not even it's it, it's so it it yeah it feels so instinctual. It's not like I'm gonna avoid this. Like it just happens, right? And so that was another question I had, or when I first read the book too, because I was like, well, I don't have any problems with avoidance. <laughs> I think I mean that maybe that's a natural reaction too. But I always feel like I do too much and then I apologize later. So I didn't kind of see myself in that light as someone who struggles with avoidance. But as I learn more and more about it and kind of reflect more, I'm like, oh, yeah, there are lots of things I avoid. Sure. So how do you help or is there a way that you talk with people about identifying what they avoid? Like if someone was listening to this and they're like, oh, maybe I should reflect and try to figure out the things that I'm avoiding. Yeah. So what I would do is introduce that principle just the way I introduced it to you. And I might say, I often suggest one of two things as a starting place for folks. I'll say... Would you like to do some work this week, Dan, on like doing something different in your actions that might bring you closer to 
these thoughts, feelings, and sensations that you're trying to stay away from to okay. see if it makes a difference for you. Because by the way, what we know about anxiety problems is that they are totally maintained by avoidance. So we can okay. work on your anxiety by working on your actions. So is there something you'd like to do this week that's different, that's more about approach, that's more about leaning in, and see what happens, and experiment, and see if anything's different? That's one assignment I might suggest. And okay. another one that I might suggest, and that these could go in tandem, or you could do either, is just to say, now that you know this principle, do you want to spend some time this week paying attention to where it might show up in your life? Like we've identified that it shows up around doing notes. Yes. Like, why don't you take some notes for five minutes a day in your notebook or your journal okay. and like say, yes. where was I trying to stay away from discomfort today? And then what was the cost? Because of course, oh, the by itself is not bad. So here's a way I stay away from discomfort every day and has no negative impact on me. Oh, okay. I start the day with a half cup of coffee. I love it. I don't want to have my day without it. And what does it do? It controls this inside feeling of fuzziness and fogginess. And like within 10, 15 minutes, I'm sharp and I feel ready for the day. Okay. Totally fine for me. Now, if I have two cups, two full cups of coffee, I am totally jittery. I am anxious. I am not ready for the day. And I start having GI distress. Okay. So, you know, there's the, in ACT, we talk about workability. How does it work for you? Well, the first option works great. No negative consequences. The second option, not so great. Even though I would probably enjoy those two cups of coffee. Yes, yes. So really, I mean, in some ways, it's probably about spending that time sort of reflecting on, you know, reflecting, journaling, noticing, and then maybe bringing it into a therapist or, or have or a close friend and sort of then talking to them about it, right? <laughs> Exploring it some and sort of saying, oh, you know, is this, yeah, is this working or is this not working? Not so much. So, okay. So this is another concept within ACT. Not so much that, that there's like, I don't know if it would be the holy grail, but it's not so like these are great behaviors to do and these are awful. But like, can you say something about, I feel like there was something in here about like that it's natural for us to sort of evaluate things all the time. Absolutely. So another one of these processes of behavior that we are evolutionarily primed to engage in okay. is mental processes, processes of problem solving, categorizing evaluating, thinking okay, categorizing. of categorizing, remembering the past, like all these things that our minds do. So think about just categorizing. Great. Like our ancestors need to look at the things around them and say, you know, food that will kill me, food I can eat. That's very helpful. We categorize all day long, right? Um, street that I want to go down, street that will take me away from where I'm going. We're constantly sorting, right? But then when we turn that inside us, we might say, feeling I want and should have, feeling I don't want and should not have. And yet we get the feelings we have. Feelings are like weather, they just happen, right? We can't, if something evokes suddenly some anger or fear, we can't prevent that from happening. All we can do is respond to it. Same thing with the judgments of people in our lives. Like, um, 
this person, good person or bad person? How, how is that measured? <laughs> right, right. Get in right. our way, right? Me, good person or bad person? You know, usually that for many people that just functions as a bludgeon to make themselves feel bad. And it doesn't actually motivate them to engage in what's important to them. They just feel bad about it. So that categorizing can be amazing in some contexts and totally useful and necessary and also part of the problem in other contexts. Yes. One of the areas that I was thinking of that I noticed is that people will check in in their therapy and say, good week or bad week. <laughs> and I just think it's so, in and so since thinking about this process, yeah. I feel like, or learning about ACT, I was like, oh yeah, this is why I sort of am always like, well, even if something bad happened, sometimes it turned out okay. Like maybe that was really upsetting and you got in that fight and you cried and, you know, whatever happened, but maybe, it, maybe there's a way that, and, of looking at those experiences that you're not just sort of pigeoning them into these holes of like good or bad. Yeah. And I'm not going to replace it with how can we say more, how can we see more good parts in the bad part, right? Getting into the good and bad is part of the problem. So I might say something different like, okay, so we're talking about letting your feelings just arrive and not fighting with them. Okay. And not going where they lead you if that's not so workable for you. So we're working on that. And we're also working on tuning in to what you care more, most deeply about. So how did that go as these bad things your mind calls them happened? Did you show up in a way that felt really connected to who you want to be? Did you make space for the thoughts and feelings that showed up? And how did that go? Okay. Final kind of question, because I oh. feel like this has come up a bit too. You, you've, you've said the things that you really care about. Mm. What is that? I mean, you keep bringing that up. Do people yeah. know? Like, are people <laughs> conscious of that? Because I was sometimes thinking maybe, yes, sometimes not. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if people are kind of tuned into that, or even allow themselves to decide that, or like you know, maybe yeah, yeah. they're just sort of like their day-to-day -day life is really because everybody else is doing the same thing at right. 30 or 40 or 50. Yeah. So the big, a big part of ACT is values, is spending time really articulating what's most important to us and how we can live that out in our actions, because actions are what we can control. We can't control whether like a negative thought shows up in our mind. Okay. Um, so, I'll give you an example. If I want to be the best husband I can be, I think about what are the actions in the way that I engage with my wife? What are those actions? Well, it's about asking questions. It's about being curious. It's about being loving and attentive. It's about being romantic. It's about um, spending time together. Those are all things I can control, <laughs> right? Yes. Behaviors, but, right? Behaviors, okay. Yeah. yeah. But if I do that, there will be some uncomfortable stuff. Sometimes I'll feel irritable. Sometimes I'll feel like, just like I want to be by myself. Sometimes I'll feel defensive if she calls me on something that, that, um, that she's upset about. And so that stuff's going to be there, right? So I'm not going to try to control that stuff. And I'm not going to expect that my best self in, like, includes getting rid of that stuff. 
It's like, I'm gonna show up as my best self and hold this stuff lightly. I'm gonna hold it like that little avatar, like my little domo. I'm gonna listen to it only when it's useful for me. What? And I was thinking then in some ways, do you have to sort of prioritize then? Oh those yeah. Values or is that part of it too? Where you yeah, so people? There is some part in ACT for most people. Yeah. In most therapy where we sit down and spend a few sessions really articulating how do you want to be? And you know, what domains of your life do you want to put energy into? If you had no barriers, how would you live out your life moment to moment? Okay. And what often helps, and there's a couple chapters on this, we I think we have a chapter called Making Values a Verb. <laughs> it helps yes, yes. it helps to think about um, adjectives, adverbs, and verbs when you think about values. So like you could say your your value is family, but that's a little nonspecific, right? Like if you're going to describe the way you want to show up with your family, what words would you use? So it might be something oh. like curious, loving, compassionate, um, attentive, fun-loving. And so what I might do is invite people to generate some of those words. And there's exercises and act that help you generate words. And then the assignment might be, would you be willing this next week when you sit down with your family members to kind of bring these words to life in your actions? And we would articulate, what would that look like? What would you do specifically if you were bringing curiosity and loving and all those words to, to bear? Even if you're tired after a long day at the dinner table, even if your kid's driving you crazy, you know? But, but it seems like it, it that feels very organizing to me and doable. Like mm -hmm. instead of sort of like, I'm going to be a better mom. And that means I don't even know what, but I would have a laundry list of things for me to say, I'm going to be more curious as a mother yeah. this week feels to me like I could choose some behaviors that would just be more manageable. Like I'm going to ask questions or when we have a discussion, I'm going to look at her. Or I'm going to ask her to show me something on, you know, what she's looking at. That's slowly. And like, how many people do you have in your office who are like, I'm such a bad mom because I didn't want to be with my kid today. Exactly. Right. Right. Or I didn't want to spend 25 minutes putting her to bed. Right. Okay. Right, and did you right, spend 25 right. minutes putting her to bed? What? And then the question might be, well, did you spend 25 minutes putting her to bed? And the answer is usually yes. And it's like, yes. okay, that's what you could control. You couldn't control whether you wanted it. To, to, yes or yeah. not. Oh, one other thing I had about the book. Mm -hmm. I noticed that like one section, I feel like borrowed a lot from positive psychology, which I love that stuff too, but mm -hmm. like kind of noticing positive emotions, practicing yeah. gratitude. Tell me a little bit about those strategies in the book or yes. ACT. Yeah. yeah, so ACT doesn't, you know, the ACT model doesn't explicitly say practice positive psychology strategies, but it okay. fits perfectly with values and commitment and with awareness because, okay. yeah, like, so if we're trying to be more aware of what's going on, a lot of positive psychology skills invite you to kind of tune in to like what you're grateful for, um, tune into savoring positive sensations yes right it's just that we we don't front end the book with that because we know that people will immediately jump on that and say well i need to make myself feel better with these positive strategies in quotes right as if exactly. positive psychology okay. means feeling only good things right and so we wait till like chapter five yeah <laughs> and, say, that and by the way though we don't want you to try too hard to control thoughts and feelings you can do these evidence-based practices that help you tune into gratitude to beauty 
to awe, right? To all the sorts yes, of things yes. that make the rich things in our life just a little bit more rich. Yes, yes. And notice most of them are actions, right? Three good things. That's a classic in the positive psychology tradition. I'm going to name for myself in writing or out loud three good things that happened today. And why does they happen? Okay. Like what a lovely, you know, sometimes my wife and I do that at the dinner table. It's like our little secular grace, right? Yes. Like yes. three good things, you know, or what are we grateful for today? Um, and like, I, because we have this negativity bias, right? We tend to look for the scary things and the bad things. Yes. We tend to forget to pay attention to the good things too. Yes. No, I love that. And what I really love, and I really hope people buy this book, is that those strat, I mean, I feel like that's what's so awesome about this, this book as a, just in terms of all the things that we've talked about is it just has so many practices mm. in here mm-hmm. for, um, you know, not only kind of confronting maybe some um, negative feelings or like accepting them, but also right. really, you know, getting comfortable with spending time enjoying the positive feelings that you have and trying to kind of re-experience them or make more space for them too. Yeah. Is there anything that I didn't ask about that you were thinking, oh, I wish you would ask me about that or any piece of advice you have for listeners and if they wanted to kind of, you know, dip their toes more into act or... Sure. So I'll say a few things. So first, there's one piece that I could say just a little bit more about, about the act tradition, and it's about your mind. Okay. Um, So this won't be surprising to say, or to hear me say, but it's also a little hard to implement for folks, which is, you know, what do you do with what we call negative thoughts? Like, I'm a bad mom. Okay. And historically, in the cognitive therapy tradition and other traditions, we look at like, well, where, how is that true? And often we try to find ways in which we're a good mom. But I think we all know that that works sometimes and sometimes backfires because like our mind is so clever, we can marshal more evidence for why you're a bad mom. <laughs> right, right. So what ACT offers us is like basically being mindful of thoughts. Like, I'm not going to try to make that thought go away. That's That itself we could think of as a learned behavior. Like I show up and my mind goes, you know, I'm a bad mom, right? Yes. When like your kid's not doing what you want them to do or you're not feeling the right thing. So like trying to push that away and make it go away for good is going to be really tricky. So let's get out of that business and let's get into the business of, oh, look, my mind is doing that habitual thing again. It's saying I'm a bad mom. Maybe in this moment I can have some compassion for myself that this is a thought that shows up a lot. And I can turn my attention to what does being the mom I want to be look like in this moment. Well, even though my mind is screaming, you're a bad mom, I'm going to set this limit with my kid. Or even though my mind is screaming, I'm a bad mom, I'm going to, I'm going to flex this limit just a little bit right now because I think that's going to work better. But I'm not going to listen to I'm a bad mom. I'm going to listen to my values about being a mom and what I know works in this moment for being a mom. So you're not struggling like in some ways you're sort of just letting it be there. You're not trying to make it go away by convincing yourself that that's not true. Yes. You're like pivoting your attention to something kind of more creative. Like, well, really what would in for, for you personally, what would it look like to be 
the mom you want to be or whatever that would be. That's like, right. That's right. That's so well said. That's exactly right. Um, we're not going to try to make any thoughts go away. None of those, no thoughts are bad. It's just how we relate to them. Do we treat them as the truth? Do we treat them as the person in charge? Or do we treat them as one part of a big whole? And we're going to focus on this part, which is like, what can I do right now while I'm kind to the thought and I'm kind to myself and I take the next step forward? Okay. Yes, like a diffusion. That's what we call it in ACT is diffusion. It's, a, it's based on a metaphor of like, if you could imagine holding your hand over your eyes. Okay. It right now. Okay. That's okay. like fused. I am fused to this thought of I'm a bad mom. Okay. Diffused is if you hold your hand out in front of you and look at your palm, that's I'm looking at that as a thought and noticing that it's a thought. And it's not the lens through which I'm looking out at the world. It's just something I'm having inside of me right now. It just feels very salient and I'm giving it a lot of power. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of tra the trauma work again, too, where they talk about blended. Like one part of you is blended and you don't have sort of like your authentic self and mm. your core kind of more core self. And then, yeah, it's like, it's more, yeah, I like this idea of like you're separating pieces and yeah, creating this, more space. I will say, I will say that this is a reference back to what I said a little bit earlier about how ACT can fit with what you're already doing. So let's say you're interested yes, in that tradition okay. of parts work, or I think that comes from internal family systems. Internal so I, family systems. Yeah, I apologize yeah. to anyone who's listening who knows that tradition really well. I don't, but I have a lot of colleagues who do like that tradition okay. and draw on it. And every time they talk about it, I think, wow, that fits perfectly with ACT as like a set so of techniques yeah. Yeah. for helping people do these evidence-based processes that we are talking about, like diffusing, being willing to have things that you might otherwise push away or avoid or, or kind of suppress or deny. Mm -hmm. and let the part of you that really cares be in charge. And so Steve Hayes, who is the primary developer with lots and lots of other people around the world of acceptance and commitment therapy, it's an international community. Um, he is talking more and more these days and doing research on what he's calling process-based therapy, which is not what is the therapy model we're working with, like ACT or internal family systems or CBT okay. or dialectical behavior therapy or psychoanalytic therapy? But what are the core processes that are important to move in therapy? Like, is it like avoidance versus approach? Is it um, following your thoughts versus noticing your thoughts? Is it, um, you know, acting on values versus acting according to your emotions in the moment? Um, these are very plain language ways of describing kind of nerdy psychological constructs that get tested in, in, in therapy and other psychological studies. Um, and so can we find the core processes and like what, whatever tradition you're in, can you work towards moving those core processes? Mm -hmm. I and, love you know, that. Like, theoretically, right. in almost every trauma treatment that I'm aware of, I practice two or three of them, and I'm aware of lots of others, it involves approaching where you might otherwise avoid. In EMDR, you're going to invite in this traumatic experience and then do this, this eye movement. Um, in prolonged exposure, you're going to call up the memory and repeat it. In cognitive processing therapy, which is a cognitive therapy for PTSD, I'm just going through various evidence-based yeah, therapies. Yeah. 
you know, you're going to look at painful thoughts that you haven't really examined and the emotions behind them and like really kind of gently take perspective on those thoughts and generate other perspectives. All of those involve approach. And of course, we all know that that also involves approaching things in your life where you might otherwise avoid. Like maybe it's worth going to the movie theater, even though it evokes some of those trauma reactions because you care about it in your life. And it, over time, it will make the trauma reaction less powerful for you and run your life less. Yes. Like that's a core process of all trauma. Exactly. As far exactly. As I know. Yeah. So can we make sure we're maximizing that and not worry if it's prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, internal family systems therapy, EMDR, all of these names that clients get confused by and therapists are desperate to learn all of them or, you know, mm -hmm. let's learn what's embedded deeply into them. And that's how ACT was built. We want to draw on core evidence-based processes of behavior yes. change. Okay. Um, and so Steve Hayes will say this really, when I first got into this community, he would say things like, if ACT is still around in a hundred years, we have failed. Because what's important is science and learning these processes, not creating this perfect treatment yes. that everyone yes. needs to learn. Right, yeah. right. No, and I mean, I feel like that's one of the blessings of being, have been in the field for a while is mm -hmm. that you feel more open to sort of weaving them all together or seeing yeah. the similarities versus mm -hmm sort of the differences and the different camps of when yeah. I first started as a therapist, it seemed yeah. like there was a lot more conflict between camps. Well, what, um, what we might offer an act is like, go ahead and be technically eclectic. They call it, you know, I'm an eclectic therapist or I practice technical eclecticism, like in what strategies I'm using, but right, maybe you right. could be theoretically coherent, right? Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the theoretical coherence here is like these processes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, how can people get a hold of you? Um, my email is, or I'll just tell you my website. It's probably the easiest. It's yeah, website. MatthewSboon.com. M-A-T-T-H-E-W-S-B-O-O-N-E. Okay. Dot com. Um, you can reach out to me with questions for recommendations. Um, I do not have a private practice, so I don't do therapy in, okay. um, outside of the medical school I work in. Um, but I do do consultation for people who want to learn acceptance and commitment therapy or this process-based approach. Okay. Um, I do trainings around the country, so people can reach out to me for that. And then if you want to learn about ACT, if you're a consumer or a therapist, self-help is a good place to start. So Great book. the book I wrote with Jen Gregg and Lisa Coyne is Stop Avoiding yep. Stuff. But there are some classics out there that have been researched. You know, self-help book is rarely ever researched, right? But in the act tradition, we've been researching the self-help books. Oh, <laughs> wow. Help. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, the great thing about your book is that people would actually read it all. I mean. <laughs> that's the goal. Right. Well, some self-help books are like they have more material in them than like a textbook. It's like that's too yeah. much, too many words. Yeah. So I'll just name three that off the top of my head I know have been researched. Okay. So, one is Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life by Steve okay. Gates. Um, the Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. Ooh, I love that one. Okay. Uh, and um, the Mindfulness and Acceptance Workbook for Anxiety, okay. which if people want to do act with anxiety disorders, that would be a great one to start. It's based on a protocol done in therapy research, and then it was adapted to a self-help book and then researched for that. That's a cool one. Okay. Those are the three I can think of. Oh, one more I can think of is the diet trap, which is an act approach to um, letting go of excessive dieting and moving forward with health behaviors. 
And there's okay. been a lot of research on that. Oh, I bet. Uh, the one thing I was sort of curious about, this is just back to being a little bit more personal before we oh. go, is anything between guitars and act? <laughs> well, yeah, for sure. Um, like you're a musician, right? Wait, this is my, per my personal story. Like how I became a therapist is... Um, I was always a very avid musician, so much so that after my freshman year of college, I quit school and I moved to Los Angeles with my band. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah, wow. and um, I eventually came back to school. I loved Los Angeles, but you know, I was ready to go back to school and I did not become a rock star. Okay. Um, and at some point I started having pain in my hands whenever I played. Um, and this was nearly 30 years ago and like, People were talking about chronic pain the way they talk about it now as something that people go through. And it certainly wasn't something 22 year olds go through. And I could not find anything to explain what was going on. And I could hardly play guitar at all. And I couldn't hand, hand write and I couldn't type. And I was in school. Um, and, you know, the thing that made the most difference after going to a bazillion doctors was my therapy. And my therapist focused on being willing to have discomfort without trying to fight it, um, being aware of your experience and focusing on what's important. I think he was drawing from mindfulness traditions and uh, AA traditions, right? 12 okay, step, like, right. so there's some acceptance in there. And that perspective just made a big difference for me. Also the idea that like, you know, we don't have to change our mind. <laughs> um, and what I really learned to do was not be so scared of the pain. And it really helped me move forward in my life. Like, I don't have to totally truncate my life in the service of protecting myself from pain. And almost 30 years later, I still have pain every day. And I have a life at the same time I have pain. And so when I got into the field and I discovered ACT, I was like, this is what I've been trying to do with my clients, but I have not had the technology or a really well-developed theory to support it, and now I do. And that's why I became an act therapist and a trainer, because it was really close to my heart. Oh, you know, that is so fascinating. I um, We have similar paths in that way. I developed a chronic pain disorder when I was, oh, I don't know, maybe like 26. Mm. And it, like you, there were no, there was not a lot of resources for chronic pain at all. Um, uh, other than, uh, you know, maybe I had some psychodynamic stuff or kind of mm -hmm. looked at past trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm always curious about how I would have responded to ACT if it would have been around then or like mm -hmm. if I would have used those principles. But I think intuitively, uh, this would be like about 12 years ago, I feel like the one thing that shifted for me with the chronic pain was the value of becoming a parent. Mm -hmm became so strong mm -hmm. that, I mean, I feel like I've been sort of pain free now for about 12 or 15 years. The, the pain disorder I have, um, it, it's episodic, so it, it can come and go. It, yeah. was, it was inflammation in my bladder. Um, yeah. and, and I think, wow, in some ways, I wonder if, if this was sort of an act intervention, that it was just like I had that the desire to be a mom and kind of go through that process just became so I was so committed with that. It was sort of like I was able to sort of like 
move past the discomfort. And you didn't have to wait for pain to go away before. And I, and I didn't wait, no. Right. And now it kind of has, and I don't know, you know, if I can completely explain that. Um, but I feel like, you know, having that sort of um, personal experience with it and sort of studying more about ACT, it's just like, oh, I, maybe that's one of the reasons why that was so effective for me. It's, it sounds very ACT consistent. What we know about people with chronic pain is that understandably, they organize their lives around protecting themselves from pain, which is absolutely necessary to a degree. Yes, to a degree, but, exactly. To a degree. Right. But then there's a point beyond that, and they're probably not aware of it. I certainly wasn't where perhaps there's a little flexibility where they can do something different. So an ACT approach to pain doesn't mean, now just do whatever you want all the time. It's like, right. let's be really aware and pay attention to our limits. And when we go past yes. our limits, be really kind to ourselves and like be really open to like not fighting ourselves for having the pain. But it doesn't mean not having pain or just ignoring it. It means really yes. paying attention to it in a new way. Yes, yes, kind of reinterpreting it. Okay. Well, I wasn't expecting that for your answer <laughs> for the guitars and act, but I love it. And there you go. As a way that our paths were similar too. Yeah. So thank you so much. Thank Once you for again, you've just been so generous. So um, thanks for joining us this week on Talking Your Way to Change. You can also visit our Facebook page. You can subscribe to the show on Anchor or iTunes so that you never miss an episode. If you found value in this show, we would appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or you could just simply tell a friend. I need to alert everyone that this podcast is not meant as a substitution for mental health treatment. So although the podcast deals with psychotherapy, this is not your psychotherapy. Okay, thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Dr. Banker.